Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the new spokesperson for Facebook Portal, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm excited to be in the studio with Cindy Cohen, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Claire Boyle, the managing editor of Timothy McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. The EFF and McSweeney's teamed up late last year to put out a special issue of the literary journal about privacy called The End of Trust. Cindy and Claire, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. Thanks. So uh, this is a great conversation. I've been having debates with my kids about this issue. I think it's sort of the debate of the next year of what can be said and what should be said online. I just recently wrote a column about Donald Trump's use of Twitter and things like that. So I want to get into it. But first, I want to get in your backgrounds really quickly. Why don't we start with you, Cindy? And then, Claire, tell me how you got to where you got. Well, I'm the executive director of the EFF. I was the legal director for EFF from about 2000 to 2015, right. so through all of the copyright wars and and, and things like that. I started um, doing digital rights in the 90s, though. I was counsel in one of the cases that freed up encryption technology, which is how you have security online, uh, from government control. Um, and it, it's, you know, the, the work that I and others did to free up encryption is why you can have a private conversation or buy something online. Mm -hmm. So I've been involved. What got you interested? What was the... Well, I, I actually have a background in international human rights. That's what I went to school for, and I worked at the United Nations. And um, But when I got to San Francisco in the early 90s, I met some of the early Internet folks, some folks who were working for the Free Software Foundation. And it just became really clear to me that this digital world that they were already living in and that we were going to be joining was going to have a whole lot of really interesting questions about people's rights mm -hmm. um, and our constitutional values. And I got lucky enough to get asked to join in one of the earliest fights the crypto case was really a First Amendment case. Right. And, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for those who don't know, is a group here in San Francisco that? Uh, we work to protect your rights when you go online. So we were founded in 1990. So we predate the World Wide Web. And we were founded by some early internet folks who really recognize that um, we were going to have to think through a lot of our rights and the balances of, of power between us and the government and us and the corporations as we moved into the digital age. And they wanted to make sure there was an organization out there advocating for users and for freedom. 
So you'd call it sort of like the ACLU for the internet in a lot of ways. I mean, I think of it that way. Yeah, we certainly do. Although my friends at the ACLU often point <laughs> out that, that they have the, they are the ACLU for the internet. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we work in the same set of issues around how the Constitution interacts with people. Right, and it's never been more important than right now. It's astonishing after twenty years. Like this is sort of the time where now it's really starting. Some of these issues are really coming to the fore. 30, 20, 20 years, thirty years. Yeah, and we're um, twenty eight years for EFF. Yeah. I think you know when we started talking about this, it was kind of a niche thing and we were mm-hmm. often talking about the future and we were like, don't, you know, you may not care about this now, but you're going to care about it in the future. And now we're at a time where if you want to get a job, if you want to find a place to live, you know, but having access to the digital world right. is crucial for the vast majority of people, certainly in the United States and, and, and increasingly around the world. So these issues become much more real to people. Absolutely. And Claire, tell me about your background, how you got to McSweeney's, of course, explain what that is. It's sure. a wonderful publication. Yeah. Um, McSweeney's, so McSweeney's is a publishing house based in the Mission District of San Francisco. We're entering our 20th year, actually. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's funded 20 years, or it was uh, started 20 years ago by the author Dave Eggers. Mm-hmm. And it started just as a literary journal that he, you know, he made in his kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he actually said that when he started the issue, um, he said that there would only be 56 issues ever made of mm-hmm. this journal, which is a little frightening because we're working on our 56 issue right now. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it kind of became a much bigger project than he expected. Um, and we we have a, an online element that has humor pieces, and we started a books division. So we do, um, you know, literary fiction. We do nonfiction. We do essays, uh, kids' books. So we do a little bit of everything. And you have a facility in, on Valencia Street. Yeah, so we um, have a, a nice little abode on mm-hmm. Valencia Street with a couple other nonprofits that Dave started. It's kind of like a— Right, helping uh, students, <coughs> this, writing and things. Yeah, scholar match. Mm-hmm. So this issue, so your background, how did you get to McSweeney's? Sure, yeah. So I, I studied writing with a couple of McSweeney's authors, and they turned me on to this weird and wonderful project and kind of shooed me along to them. To um, them. Yeah. And so how did this come about, this idea? Of the, and why don't you start, uh, Claire, talking about what? how did you decide to do this issue? Because you have topical issues, right? Mm-hmm. You've had topical issues before. Yeah, we have themed issues. Mm-hmm. Themed issues is definitely a, a big part of the quarterly. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually, you know, themed around fiction stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is our first ever entirely nonfiction issue. Uh, so it's it was definitely um, out of our wheelhouse. But so Dave Eggers, who is, you know, in his other work, been concerned with these issues. He, he wrote has. The he novel, wrote a whole the book, circle, The Circle, um, <laughs> and is just, uh, you know, very invested in these these ideas. And he came to us and he said, I want to do this issue. I want us to do an issue called End of Trust, and I want it to be about surveillance and privacy. You know, take it away. So it was a really interesting way for us to start this project because we— by definition of how it came to us, we're entirely novices. Right. Um, weren't even necessarily engaged because it came from... Um, yeah, Dave you know, had Dave, an interest It was in his it. interest. Right. Um, and the circle was about Google, essentially. It was sort of a Google-like, mm-hmm. better book than a movie. Right. Uh, but it so, was... Some may say. It was not a good movie. I, just, <laughs> yeah. I recently saw it. Just not a good movie. Could have been. Mm. But the concept was that these giant platforms are ruling our lives and sometimes in frightening ways, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And so that was the concept. And so how did, Cindy, how did you guys get involved? So they're novices. They don't know a lot about it beyond Dave's books. Well, they reached out to us, um, and one of my designers, um, Soraya Okuda, had worked with Dave in the past. And so I don't know who 
I think McSweeney's reached out to Soraya and said, would EFF be interested in doing this? You know, we have long been interested, you know, recognized that if we're going to build a really good digital future, it can't just be the lawyers and the technologists right. who are thinking about it. reports from time to time, We right. put out reports. We actually did a whole volume of speculative fiction mm-hmm. um, a year or so ago where we had just friends of ours who were fiction writers write some pieces for us. But, but you know, we'd, we'd never done something as professional as this. And so McSweeney's reached out and said, would you help us? And, and it, we were delighted because mm-hmm. this, you know, this endeavor of building a digital world that we all want to live in is, is it's a big one. And it requires people with all sorts of skill sets, not not mm-hmm. just, you know, we're primarily lawyers and technologists. At right, EFF. right. But you're trying to get through like speculative. What is that like a Black Mirror episode you're trying to do there? Where yeah, it's, it's a whole bunch of speculative fiction is a kind of science fiction. All mm-hmm. of them science fiction purists will probably cringe that I said that. But um, I think you can't build a better world unless you can envision it. Right. And you also can't be clear-eyed at our world unless somebody, unless you describe it really clearly. And so this volume is really about the clear-eyed view of the world we're in right now. Right. And then the fiction work is really kind of how yeah. do we how do we take the next step? I recently was telling a bunch of uh, design, uh, people who make products at these companies what they should do is every time they think of a product, what is the Black Mirror episode of it? <laughs> like what, it, what, what, what would be the bad story yes. here, um, that would uh, make us very upset? What's the worst case scenario? And some of the companies are trying to reach out to science fiction writers and have them do some of that thinking for them. And I think that's that's useful. Too long, I think, um, folks in Silicon Valley really couldn't step outside of their own experience of things and look at how somebody might misuse mm-hmm. stuff. We'll start with the Terminator, maybe. <laughs> yeah. One, Which two, is funny, right? I mean, because yeah. no, we've got I, science fiction as a, a whole genre mm-hmm. right now, um, especially, I think, really overloaded with dystopian futures. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a reaction. Sure, they all are, actually. Um, and I'm, I'm almost, at, at my point, trying to pivot towards the other side. I keep, I keep joking that, you know, sexual politics aside, I'd like to get back to the Jetsons uh, and <laughs> well, away from Black Mirror. Black Mirror, San Jacinto is the most popular show, which is a hopeful look yes. at the future, which is interesting. So you guys are figuring out what to do. Talk about how you brought in writers and what you were thinking about. Did you solicit writers or what? Sure, yeah. So when we started thinking about this project, um, we sat down and we did some research and we started educating ourselves, um, which was a big chunk of this project. And it, we just kept hitting up upon this, you know, upon this realization that we needed some smart people on board. Mm-hmm. And that's when we reached out to EFF. Um, and thank God they were interested in being a part of it because this issue would not have existed and would not have been um, the thing that it is without them. So I think like Cindy was saying, it's this really awesome marriage between everything that EFF has been working on and and their razor sharp and reviews. And how, how did you decide who you wanted in it? What was it? Sure. So, so then we started, I think the first person I reached out to in the community was actually Cory Doctorow, mm-hmm. who generously threw me a list of like 30 to 50 people Mm -hmm. to just start, you know, reading their work. So that's where I started. And I just read a bit of everyone that he gave to us. And we started putting a list together and we talked to EFF about it. We had a meeting and we kind of went from there. And then we solicited. All the pieces are solicited except for, I think, one. Mm -hmm. Um, So we asked for open, we had an open call for submissions as well Mm -hmm. and read a bunch of them in one of the pieces in there was pulled from that. Was pulled from that. And what were you looking for? Because you also want, the end of trust, you also, there's people who don't agree with you. So did you want to create that, the idea of a debate, or just this is like, here's the 10 things we need to be worried about? Um, We tried to actually have people with different viewpoints, not Mm -hmm. necessarily a debate. There's not really a debate inside Mm -hmm. the book very Mm -hmm. much. Um, But we did have people. Well, it's called the end of trust. So that kind of sets the tone for (laughs) a little bit. But, you know, so we had some, you know, people who think kind of on a, you know, uh, you know, Ethan Zuckerman, who who kind of is a kind of a, a wildly 
intelligent um, technologists. We have mm-hmm. people who track things. We have people who do other things, kind of different pieces of where trust is ending, really. You know, whether you're looking at, um, you know, Mr. Snowden's pieces about the blockchain. This is kind of the end of trust of money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other people are talking about copyright. Other people are talking about future FOIA requests. Um, I thought it was really important that we include voices from people of color mm-hmm. um, because when we talk about surveillance, you know, the, the, the surveillance society we've built for ourselves now really um, is uh, more familiar to people of color. They have been targeted uh, by surveillance disproportionately for a long time. And a lot of the things that we're now seeing being deployed, say, in our streets, Mm -hmm. um, were first deployed against people of color. And so having um, uh, Georgetown professor Alvaro Bedoya, uh, who runs the Color of Surveillance Conference, um, is a different of mine, and and Malkia Searle, um, and and there are others as well. But it was really important for me that we not talk about just how surveillance affects the kind of people who we think of as the technical digerati, but mm-hmm. the, but actually, you know, where this stuff really comes from and hits the hardest is is not our community. Right. So, Claire, go through some of the writers and what they wrote about. So go through. Sure, yeah. Um, so the first piece uh, is Sarah Watcher-Bachter, mm-hmm. um, who wrote a piece called, ooh, Everything Happens So Much. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Um, and so she wrote a piece about her experience going and giving a talk at Google about mm-hmm. her recent book that talks about, you know, the bias, biases within algorithms and mm-hmm. how that is created through who's making these right. products. And she's, you know, talking to Google about this. Who's about, making these products. And she actually, right, exactly. She actually opens her talk with um, a Google Maps you know, kind of hiccup they had where they were putting how many calories were burned if you walk a certain distance and, you know, relating that to how many cupcakes that would be. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was a pretty risky, in my mind, thing that she did. It was a bold mm-hmm. move. And she just immediately got, you know, once she got that link, she looked at the comments and they were just so disrespectful and scathing and, you know, focused on her appearance and on her, you know, being a woman and all these things. And so um, it's kind of that she talks about, you know, being so well-versed in this industry and actually um, so aware of the ways that it is problematic and how even all that knowledge didn't prepare her, didn't inoculate her from being affected by it herself. All right, another one. What did Jenna Wortham write? Jenna Wortham wrote a really beautiful letter. Yeah, um, she wrote a really beautiful letter about, you know, when you walk into like a convenience store and there are those cameras mm-hmm. that you can see yourself on the screen. Um, there's this kind of, tr- you know, trend of taking a picture of yourself in that camera. Oh, okay. in, On the Shadow screen. Yeah. yeah. And she's talking about, um, you know, the idea of recapturing as a black woman. Um, and this happens largely in the black community. Mm-hmm. Um how, you know, this idea of recapturing your image and how it's this um, statement about technology and about Mm -hmm. taking it back and framing yourself. Um, Yeah, that was a really beautiful letter she wrote for us. Some other pieces. Cory Doctorow wrote a wonderful piece about um, peak indifference and privacy nihilism, which was a really important topic I think Cindy also wrote about in her foreword for, about kind of this idea of people feeling like 
the issue has gone so far that we can't pull ourselves back from it. You become nihilistic immediately mm-hmm. as you, you know, yep, realize that there's a problem. Like yeah, mm-hmm. you really think. Talk about that, Cindy. <clears throat> Talk about that. Yeah, in fact, there was just a study that came out over the last couple of days around this that mm-hmm. confirmed what I think um, a lot of our um, intuition was, which is that, you know, there's this sense that the advertisers push and the big platforms push, which is that people don't really care about their privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're discovering is that that's actually not the case. People just feel unempowered. They mm-hmm. feel like there's nothing they can do, right. that they, they can't really function, that they don't really have a choice or a voice. And, you know, you see that with click wrap, you know, contracts that are, you know, supposed to be contracts, but really aren't, right? Mm -hmm. They're just a thing you have to agree to in order to do something. Right. And so I think one of the goals that we had for this and, you know, it's called the end of trust was to not make people feel like at the end of it, you know, that they should just either unplug all their devices because they're not going to do that. Right. Or just give up and go away. I mean, I wanted people, we want people to feel empowered, not disempowered by the truth. And that's actually tricky. And, you know, Corey is, you know, uh, works with EFF as well, is right Mm -hmm. now fighting a really bad um, copyright proposal in Europe. Mm -hmm. But he's one of the best people to fire people up um, with the idea that you're not disempowered because you do feel that way like what do you even like through we'll talk about this in a little bit with Facebook you don't know what to do do you need to just go off it or do something to make them change or or at least demand changes and you feel which is one of the many and one of the arguments when I did a podcast with Mark Zuckerberg was well we're free so and I was like so so people without money have to put up with shit like it was kind of an interesting but that's what he thinks like he's giving you all this great stuff so put up or shut up, you know, kind of thing. I think so, too. I mean, you know, increasingly, you know, there's certainly a lot of work to be done to put pressure on Facebook to be better. Mm-hmm. Most of the pressure that we put on them is to empower users, right? Mm-hmm. And one That's of the best I mean, ways yeah. you empower users is to let them go. I, I kind of um, have been saying that Facebook doesn't really have users or customers. They have hostages at this <laughs> point. And, um, and, and, you know, letting people go, giving them the tools so that they can take their data and leave and go mm-hmm. somewhere else um, or use open API. I mean, I think the other thing that we all really need to resist is the idea that there there is only one network or only two networks. Like we need to develop, you know, this is some of the work that my friend Brewster Kale is doing mm-hmm. at the Internet Archive to build a decentralized web so that we don't have to put so much pressure on Facebook because people can leave. Or the giant platforms. Yeah, there are other good options. This, you know, this idea that there's five giant platforms and everything is there. There's two. Well, it depends on what you're platforming for, right? Right. We talk about Amazon, which is the back end of so many other things. Yes, yeah, Um, yeah. That the problem that, you know, that I think is is most we're talking about is like, well, first of all, how do we get here? Because the internet was designed to be the great decentralized Yes, and we're going to talk about that next, yeah. Um, And then how do we get out? All right. All right. Can we get back? We're going to talk more about this really terrific issue of McSweeney's. It's called The End of Trust. We're here with Cindy Cohen, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, as it's better known, and Claire Boyle, the managing editor of McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. 
So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We're here with Cindy Cohn, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Claire Boyle, the managing editor of McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. We're talking about a new issue of McSweeney's that EFF worked on with them called The End of Trust, and it's about all kinds of issues with different writers discussing stuff. And we talked about some of it, including technealism and other things. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the issue uh, and some more stuff. Claire, talk about some more of the stuff, and then I want to get into these bigger issues about what you just brought up, Cindy, about five platforms or whatever, how many. I think there's two. You think there's, I do agree with you that possibly there's three. Um, And where we go from here and how it devolved into this. Sure. Um, So we got a great piece with Snowden. Mm -hmm. uh, Edward Snowden. Yeah, Edward Snowden, in which uh, his lawyer at the AC, his attorney at the ACLU, Ben Wisner, mm-hmm. interviews him, and it's this really endearing conversation. So the concept is that Snowden is explaining blockchain to his mm-hmm. lawyer, mm-hmm. but they also have this just really great dynamic because they're they have a closeness that you can tell through mm-hmm. the interview. Um, so that's a, a favorite for that reason. There's also this really great line at, in the intro that Ben wrote about them getting together over. Vodka for Ben and milkshakes for Snowden. (laughs) Love that image of them. Uh Um, And I think it's a really good uh, representation of the issue as a whole because you've got this expert um, who has such a a wealth of information um, trying to, you know, explain it to a larger audience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how we see this issue as a whole is we take, you know, what McSweeney's is trying to do is take EFF's Yes, the more complicated knowledge stuff and kind of introduce it to a larger audience, make it palatable, make it understandable. Right. Um, and another uh, interview actually that I think does that really well is the Trevor Paglin, Julia Angwin uh, conversation that they did, moderated by uh, Rehan Hermanshi, mm-hmm. who is also you know incredibly smart and knowledgeable about these mm-hmm. issues, but kind of plays the part of the reader, asking questions and clarifying and digging into. The issues, so and the issues they talk about. Julia's been big on privacy issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, she's written a lot and started a new uh, company. Right. Mm-hmm. right, and this is about just privacy in general. Yeah, that one is kind of a capstone uh, interview. They they talk about mass surveillance primarily, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of a great. Uh, it comes early in the issue for this reason. It kind of lays out just a primer for. And what about what you're copyright? About to- copyright is covered in this, Cindy. I don't think there's too much copyright in it because mm-hmm. it really was aimed more at, um, privacy. Surveil- at privacy and surveillance and stuff. I mean, uh, this is not reflected in the volume, but, you know, a lot of the surveillance techniques that we're now seeing deployed in other contexts were developed under copyright, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, the the industry insisted that a lot of technologies be built so that you could watch what users do because you can't trust users. And the right. story was that you can't trust users because of copyright, but now... We Which they were trying to ferret out the copyright that was posted on all these platforms. Which was the fight of the last era, right? That's of, right. Of, of media companies getting their stuff hijacked by 
Google, mostly Googles and others of the world. Right. But when you implement a system like the one they're trying to do in Europe right mm -hmm. now or the SOPA. Explain that. Explain. Yeah. So, um, so uh, there is a um, part of the European copyright directive that is um, being negotiated right now. It just got kicked over for a little while. And the pressure will be on anybody who hosts other people's speech, which is all the platforms, um, that they essentially have to put in filters, that mm -hmm. anything that you might upload to the internet has to go through some filter that gets checked to make sure that it hasn't been claimed as a copyright infringement right. by somebody else before it gets posted. Right. Um, and A lot it, of this does have to do with how lazy they were in doing this in the first place by just opening platforms up. You know what I mean? They didn't put in systems in place whatsoever. You think any system is a problem? Well, we haven't yet seen one, mm -hmm. and I think there are really good reasons why mm -hmm. we won't ever see one that's not massively overbroad or underbroad right. and just wrong. Right. Filters don't work. Mm -hmm. um, and as we've seen, you know, just most recently with Tumblr trying to get rid of, right. of um, adult content. They over get rid of. They over get rid of, and they under get rid of. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't work in either way. Filters really cannot substitute yeah, there for was an, there human was judgment. There was a story in the New York Times is showing that some of the stuff, the stuff they wanted to keep off, they didn't, and the stuff they didn't mean to keep off, they did. Yeah, um, Boing Boing, Corey did, a, did this um, a hilarious kind of recursive thing where mm -hmm. he did a story about the things that were supposed to be um, able to be on Tumblr based on Tumblr's own blog post and then mm -hmm. Tumblr took it down and then he wrote about it again and then Tumblr took it down. They had this little circle where right. he kept writing and this was all based on the stuff that Tumblr itself had told the world was okay. Right. So filters don't work. Mm -hmm. um, they have never worked. We've seen this all the way back from the breastfeeding mothers on, you know, right. on, the, the, the uh, picture uh, from Vietnam. Uh, and picture from Vietnam. And so this idea that you can technology your way out of um, yeah. these kinds of problems is, is never works. Well, you know, AI is going to say us from these AI is not going to save us. And, then, you know, there's a great piece in here by uh, Virginia Eubanks uh, uh, who has been tracking the problems with algorithmic decision-making, especially their disproportionate effect on the poor. Once mm -hmm. again, the poor and people of color have this stuff deployed against them before oh, it comes to the rest of us. It's utterly going to be about about criminal activity. Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I don't, that's that's where everyone says it's going to be about health, it's going to be about this, it's going to be about diagnosis, it's going to be about watching everybody. It really. is about watching everybody. Mm -hmm. And when you build systems with this idea that you can technologically watch everybody and magically tell who's good and who's bad mm -hmm. through any kind of technology, they're going to fail, which is why, you know, it's, it, it's frankly, I think, you know, you don't have to be digital. I mean, the, the idea that Congress shall make no law respecting freedom of speech was, you know, in our constitution isn't because everybody always thought all speech was great. Mm -hmm. It's because of this fundamental problem that you give too much power to somebody when you give them the power to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't right. get to speak. And adding a machine to that mix doesn't make it better. Right. It makes it worse. Yeah, yeah. Humans are pretty bad, though. <laughs> well, but at least it's yeah. humans, right? Yeah. At least we've right. got this idea of judges and people Right, we who, don't question machines. We don't question machines when they're... Exactly. They, we think they're right, and often they are. They often with diagnostics and different things like that. Computers can do lots of things. Right, They right. cannot look into the heart of man and decide whether you're right. good or bad. Though. Right, There was a great story in the Times, actually, also, besides the one we're going to talk about in a minute, about chess and how much better they've gotten at chess. There's a new Google chess player that is that now understands the beauty of chess versus just the brutality. The, their old solutions were just brutal attacks, and now it's being subtle, and st which is fascinating. When you've got a system with a bunch of set rules, and mm -hmm. those rules are not very... Um, they're not widely interpretable, and you've got a sense a, a huge set of data that um, you can tell whether it's right or it's wrong. You can get a machine to automate like mm -hmm. in, in ways that seem really miraculous. But mm -hmm. when you get beyond that 
relatively narrow scope of things where you're right. trying to do things where you really need context, where you really need things like that, when you don't have good data, right? If you right. use policing data to try to predict who's a criminal, you're not predicting who's a criminal. You're predicting who the police think is a criminal, right. which exactly. we all know is a very different set of things. Absolutely. So these problems permeate it, and they're right. going to permeate any system. I'm getting back yeah, to the copyright. I have a formula for that. I have a point. It's called crap in, crap out. Totally. Crap totally. Crap so, Claire, what did you learn from this, from, from looking, going through it? Now, you're, you're, you're a neophyte or novice in this area. What, sure. what was your takeaway from? Sure, yeah. So I think the biggest thing that I learned from working on this issue with EFF is, you know, I, I definitely went into this issue and encountered this attitude all around me as I was working on it is this idea that, you know, I have nothing to hide. Mm-hmm. So what's the problem with, you know, this kind of surveillance? And this attitude is an incredibly privileged attitude to have. Because you're not under siege. Right. You're not under siege. You have nothing to hide. Um, you know, it's it's a very white perspective. It's an upper middle class perspective. Um, and there are communities that we, you know, we need to protect we have our journalists, we have our activists, we have our muckrakers, mm-hmm. um, and we have communities that are disproportionately watched regardless um, and are, are uh, vulnerable to this kind of surveillance. And thinking about these issues as individual rights mm-hmm. is, I think, the biggest problem from the get-go uh, instead of thinking about this as a collective right. This privacy protection against surveillance is a collective right, and we have to work all of us together to provide it for. Well, it's also not started that way, Cindy. I mean, it's a a creep in a lot of ways. You can do these things. You sort of start—it's the sort of— boiling the frog kind of thing is you're used to it and then you let nest in your home then you let this in your home and you this is more this is easier for amazon to have a key to your house and on and on and on it does it does and and it's met with you know what's interesting i was talking about an antitrust lawyer the other day and they're like the problem is we can't prove consumer harm because people like it like you know what i mean like it's a really we have to change the idea of what antitrust is for example because it's con- more and more convenient it's more and more stuff that you want can you talk a little bit about that cuz surveillance can be not as it can, it can be not um sort of a malevolent seeming in the beginning. Yeah, I think that it's one of the things that humans have a hard time with, right? They have Mm -hmm. a really hard time with a a small thing that happens here that could lead to a big problem down the line, Mm -hmm. and they have a really hard time if you can't see direct causation between Mm -hmm. one and the other. And surveillance is one of those issues where um, both of those things exist. And so it's hard for people to think, you know, I mean, look, I mean, it's hard for people in our age and our generation right now. You know, people who lived through World War II, you know, there's not a Holocaust survivor who doesn't understand understand the risk of having big databases in the mm-hmm. hands of anybody that mm-hmm. will allow you to be tracked. Right. Um, so, and and certainly people around the world, when, you, you know, I, get, I go to Cambodia, I go to, you know, any sure. place where there's been a, 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 you know, massive human rights violation, um, most, almost all of them have been fed by the data that is collected by the people because that's sure. how you figure out the people you want from the people you don't, whether it's Hutus and Tutis or whatever. Yep. Um, I had an argument with one of the Google founders about this and they're like, we're nice people. I go, today. Yeah. And I said, and who knows who's going to run it? Like your information in the hands of a bad person, I don't even want to think about it. Yeah. Like, and, and you know, and, and even a good person who doesn't understand the broader context can be, mm-hmm. can cause trouble. But yes. And, and you know, just if you build it, they will come. You know, this data doesn't stay in the hands of, of, mm-hmm. of angels. Um, it certainly doesn't all around the world. Um, and it's one of the things that, that um, you know, that, for instance, that Apple said to the FBI around mm-hmm. opening up the iPhone. They said, well, even if we do it for you, you know, what, what do we do in the next? 
next government comes walking. Now, that's not Apple mm-hmm. holding the data. That's Apple holding the keys that lets them into right. your data. But it's, it's the same problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is the case that I think uh, people have been, uh, you know, kind of the tiny little cuts on people's privacy Um, have been visible, but they've all felt tiny. And what you haven't seen is this gigantic infrastructure back behind things that is collecting all that Mm -hmm. data, organizing that data, analyzing all that data, and increasingly running it through algorithms. Of which only a few companies have the power, right? Who would you, the two companies, you and I were talking about this, but the two companies I think would be Facebook and Google, um, or Google particularly, who have... Um, for sure, in terms of the consumer collecting of the data, there's a lot of AI being sold, though, to back-end companies. There's a, mm-hmm. Your data doesn't just stay um, in, in, you know, I mean, Facebook, um, Amazon has a tremendous amount of data on all mm-hmm. of us. They're pretty jealous of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Facebook will say they don't share it, but they kind of de facto share this, all the information you would need to get there. They say there. they don't sell it. Yeah. Um, they share it. And the they way that they share it. it is also just a little disingenuous, but there's a lot of companies that are scooping up um, a lot of this data. Like Axiom. And the others, yeah, yeah uh, you know, and Google has DoubleClick, um, mm-hmm. and you know, so Google itself is collecting a bunch of data, but DoubleClick, which is the ad network, is collecting a huge amount of data mm-hmm. and from lots and lots of places. Um, and we have a tool that EFF builds called Privacy Badger, where we help protect people against third-party cookies and other things. And mm-hmm. and my team there does a lot of a- analysis of who's doing the most tracking. And Google, by far, head and shoulders, by far, because it's about eighty percent of what you do online is trackable by Google at this right, point. Right, maps now and everything. Yeah. Everything, um, so they are they are big, but there's a lot of other companies that have access to this data that do stuff with this data. They're doing so. I mean, it's it's important to talk about Google, but it's also important not to get too myopic because mm-hmm. even if Google didn't exist the, the uh, uh, anymore or mm-hmm. wasn't doing anything bad with them, there's a lot more companies. So we have to we have to think a little more, um, I think, holistically about what's our approach to our data mm-hmm. um, and and what are the 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 models we want to think about for our data that we want to apply to the big guys that we see, but also the, a lot of the big guys that we don't see. We don't see. Now, Claire, one of the things that people think about is sensors and did you have stuff about that sensors and surveillance like in China, actual cameras and things like that? Um, yeah, so we we had a lot of people talking about um, this citizen, uh, I forget what it's called, the kind of citizen like rating system that mm-hmm. they're starting to um, Put in, put China. in place in social China. scoring, social, social scoring, scoring. which right. was an so, episode of Black Mirror. But go ahead, go ahead. and is now happening in the real world. Right? Um, yeah, well, it's bonkers. It? I really didn't. It sounds science fiction. I actually right. didn't believe it the first time I heard it. Which is essentially that, like everything you do, if you show up late to work, if you, you know, jaywalk, that all gets put into is being watched, being recorded, and being folded into your your score, and that affects, you know, if you can buy movie tickets, if you can get visas, if you can whatever it may be, like Mm -hmm. that will affect how you interact with the world. And so it's already, you know, being proven to change behavior dramatically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people touched on the fact that that's not inconceivable. Yeah, is there is there was there a sense of why they're allowing it in China? I think it's going to come here. I don't. I think there's. I think there's already things happening here with a lot of companies that do mm-hmm. this in order to get credit. Now, credit's always been that thing. They they judge. There's a whole problem with credit scores. Of course, people are unfairly, and so they're like, we'll make it better. We'll make it so we can look at your social feed. We can look at this and. It probably does make a better judgment of whether you're going to default on a loan or whatever they're trying to give you. But at the same time, it adds more and more data that may be misconstrued of whether you're to other things. There, there's one issue of getting a credit and there's another issue of how you behave as a citizen. Right, right. And it's like how far do you want to take that? Um, and once it becomes, you know, you get 
deducted for um, jaywalking. You know, jaywalking. I would criticizing totally the government. <laughs> I jaywalk all the time. Um, you know, speaking ill of uh, people in power, then mm-hmm. that becomes really dangerous and frightening. And who decides those things? Right. Cindy, what do you think of China right now in terms of, because one of my things I talk about a lot is that one of the, again, when I interviewed Mark Zuckerberg, he's like, well, you may not like what I'm doing, but what they're doing in China is worse. And so I, I call it the G or me argument. And I'm like, I don't like either of you. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't like yeah. him more, but I definitely don't like you either. And it was a really interesting question. It's like, should we let China run the next internet age, essentially? And this is a country that just absolutely does surveillance probably better than any other country at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are... Facial uh, recognition. There are real concerns here, and um, and they can point the ways to some things that are especially troubling. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, our... Our ability to control what happens in China is pretty limited. It's important that we pay attention to it. Um, You know, but, you know, for instance, one of the problems that they had in China with their facial recognition system was that it, um, just like the facial recognition systems here, it really does a really poor job of recognizing people of color. Yes. Um, What the government of China did, at least according to the news report I read, is they went to the government of Zimbabwe and they bought all of the driver's license and identity cards data from the government of Zimbabwe so that they could train up their systems on black faces. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about artificial intelligence and the kinds of decision-making, uh, machine learning decision-making as well, you know, the answer to a problem to the system is just more data. Right. Um, but that ought to be really frightening to people. Yes, and it, it is. To, and that's, in fact, I had Kai Fu Lee talking direction. about that. He said China's going to prevail because it has just more data. One yeah. of the reasons Google might be wanting to... Google denies this, but I don't believe them, that they don't that they want to go to China because they need more data. They need, because the Chinese companies are beating them on that issue. Well, maybe. I'm beating in some well, weird thing. I mean, yes. like this weird race to the bottom that everybody's right. no, in. But like, more data yeah. is all it wants. Yeah, and I just think that it's it's tremendously troubling. I think we do have to start getting some handles around, you know, what are we doing with artificial intelligence? What's okay to do with it? What's not okay to do with it? What are mm-hmm. the what are the rules? You know, we're in California, right, where they're doing, they got away, they did away with money bail, and now mm-hmm. they're trying to use these um, uh, risk assessments that are based on flawed police data. Um, and the answer isn't more data, right? Mm-hmm. The answer is, you know, you just can't use machine learning for certain kinds of decisions. Um, right. For China, you know, the other issue for, I think, Americans to take seriously is, you know, the Great Firewall of China was built by Cisco. Mm-hmm. Like it was built by an American company. Sure what is the responsibility of American companies for building repressive tools well, that other governments should Google use? Going in there now. There's another big debate around um, Project Dragonfly, which mm-hmm. is great. We, you know, EFF is older than Google, um, mm-hmm. and we were in the mix when they decided to go into China the first time, and in the mix when they decided to come out. And now the, you know, at least temporarily, it looks like they're pulling the plug. But I think, I think companies and and you know, American people here are building a lot of the technologies that are being used or training them. Like we have to have a serious conversation about, you know, what what does it mean to be repression's little helper and right. is that Although what you know their argument okay? is we'll make them better. Yeah. No, nah, I'm like they'll make you worse. You know, I, I mean that story that's that that story is just, you know, um Let's just say, as a as a as people who are technologists and scientists, like I believe in evidence based decision making. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence whatsoever that engagement with the Chinese government has been an improvement for human no. rights. That was that was the story about most favored yes, nation indeed. station. Yep. That's been the story over and over again. The data is clear that engagement does not bring better human rights. No. So if that's your tool, you need a different tool. Um, right. And and well, we have no leverage. Well, yeah. we we might have levers if we wanted to pull them, but 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 I think that the the idea that merely engaging no. with any con- country, but certainly China, would lead to better human rights abuses has right. been thoroughly disproven. Right, Claire, was there a favorite article that you liked? In the- um, I 
Don't you dare ask me that. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> Is there a favorite topic? Um, they were all wonderful. So I think uh, one that I really dove into and uh, was really interesting for me to work on um, was the piece called the Digital Blues by Jennifer Cabot. Mm-hmm. Um, and and who's Jennifer? Piece. Jennifer Cabot is a, a writer, a nonfiction yeah. essayist, who took this year-long quest to figure out, she was just aggravated by this question of why every everything in the digital space is blue, all the icons, all the links, all the everything <laughs> is blue. Why is blue everywhere? Um, is and it? it's this uh, really awesome piece that chronicles kind of her being driven mad by this hunt and jumping from people to people, trying to figure out, you know, she talks to, like, um, I, people who study the eye and how the mm-hmm. eye works, and she talks to, um, you know, people who put news together, people who, you know, she talks to everyone across the board, um, and she talks to people who, you know, designed the Internet from the get-go. And it was, kind of came up at this conclusion that... Um, Everyone she jumped from person to person came up with the same idea that blue is trust and blue is safety and blue is health and um, and linked it back to these early attitudes when the internet was just uh, a little inkling of a an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, these kind of um, blue links. Blue links, yeah. which apparently the first link was green, I think, I, but it I quickly was there. turned I don't recall. blue. <laughs> I, it was blue for sure right um, at the beginning. But, but it's this. This was like a very utopian mm-hmm. idea at the get, at the beginning of the internet, um, with all the rainbows and the globes and mm-hmm. all these icons, and um, that the blue is this holdover for this utopic, you know, idea of the internet. But it's it's kind of been used in this nefarious way to mask. Uh, what has changed mm-hmm. um, and mask um, these big tech giants who are who are doing these, right. Well, yeah. we're going to talk about that where we went, where we came from. Uh, when we get back, we're talking with Cindy Cohn of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Claire Boyle, the managing editor of McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. They just put out a literary journal, just put out a first nonfiction uh, collection. It's about privacy and the lack of trust, called "The End of Trust." Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent. You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
We're here with Cindy Cohn, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Claire Boyle, the managing editor of McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, talking about the latest journal, which they did together, called The End of Trust. And it's about big issues today. Um, when we were just talking, Claire was just talking about this idea of utopia, that this was going to be a good thing. You and I were around, Cindy, when that was, I was started covering the internet in 1992, 91. So pretty early, um, very early on when it first went commercial, essentially. And the, that was the concept. That's why I got it. It's like the idea of a democratic... Uh, away from the big gatekeepers, away from the decision makers, largely white men, you know, who are running all the big newspapers, the networks, everything else, at least in this country and all around the world. Um, it was sort of a freeing idea. Where are we now? <laughs> where, where do you imagine we're now? Because now it seems every, the, the chickens are coming home and they're roosting quite a bit, like all these issues. Well, you know, um, I think that the reality is that more people have access to a microphone and, uh, and a voice that can reach everyone in the before. world than ever before. So, you know, to a certain extent, the Internet did succeed on one of the things that made it really exciting for mm-hmm. us. And um, so know, everybody gets to speak. Everybody gets to speak. The distance, the physical distance between you and your loved ones now makes no difference and how close you can be to them. I think that that's a a piece of um, a miracle that the digital networks brought that sometimes we all take for granted now Mm -hmm. that, you know, that I can just pick up my phone and I can be talking to somebody on the whole other side of the world and we can have a real conversation. I don't have to wait for the mail or, you know, hope that it all goes through. So these things are all still with us. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what's happened is that we have slid away from the idea of a decentralized system to one that is increasingly centralized. And and there's a lot of bad um, benefits from that. I think the other early thing that that, you know, I kind of call one of the original sins of the Internet is we didn't build a secure system. We built a tremendously insecure system. And so the data breaches, the data leaks, um, the kind of surveillance, governmental surveillance, which is, you know, something I've spent uh, you know, the last dozen years and, trying and to stop. And just the way it's been built, too, the way it's been built. I mean, I always say the Russians were customers of Facebook. They didn't hack. They didn't have to hack. No, they didn't have to. I mean, right. the you know, the surveillance business model, which really wasn't the first business model of the Internet. It really mm-hmm. came up in the mid-2000s, um, this idea that the, the, the way, you know, I, I always say, you know, Moses didn't come down off of a mountain saying, you know, the, the surveillance is, you know, advertising is the business model of the Internet. It mm-hmm. wasn't even the first one. Um, but this business model has resulted in a lot of things that are problematic for people right now. Um, that it's, it's resulted in these gigantic databases. It's resulted in this gigantic gathering of data about us that's now being mined and used. Um, it's resulted in the tremendous power of the tech companies. I mean, there's a interesting uh, research now coming out about, you know, who, who gets that advertising money um, and you know is it really the case that consumers are benefited by the you know marginal difference in targeting compared to the amount of extra money that advertising are spending for that marginal bit sure. and the platforms are just walking away with the money in they the middle um, you know my friend Cory Doctorow points out that you know the the growth of the digital platforms uh, really coincided with the abandonment of traditional antitrust principles um, in in the United States. Um, and this idea that the only thing that matters is whether consumers have a financial harm is not the original antitrust idea either. It came out of the late 1990s and has become, I think, a real problem for talking seriously about the problems of the big platforms right now. Um, so, Well, there's so many. We didn't even get into free speech. You're coming back to talk about free speech. Uh, that's I another, would be delighted to come back. Because that's another one. It's yeah, really problematic. And there was I, a story in the New York Times this, about who... I don't think they can manage it. That's my feeling, is that it's unmanageable the way they've built it, and it's grown to this proportion that it's unfixable by anybody. Well, I think that's right, I, except I think that one of the things we have to do is we have to get away from the idea that 
there's just one. We have to really start pushing on a decentralized web. There needs to be multiple places for people to speak. There needs to be multiple ways right. for people to do it. And the idea that one big company, right. um, you know, the New York Times today has a, a story that is very consistent with the work that we've done over the last 10 years, tracking how badly the big No, they're incompetent screwed. and immoral at the same time. It's a hard Not thing immoral, to do. Not immoral, amoral. They're amoral and incompetent, which is such a delightful combination. It's a very hard thing to do. You know, the United States State Department puts out a report about the human rights status of all the countries in the world. They have a dedicated staff that is on the ground in countries all around the world, and they come out with their country reports every mm-hmm. year. Um, they get it wrong, too, but that's the I think, you know, and and the government of Sweden does this. Governments do this kind of analysis of each other that is sophisticated and careful. And it takes them all year and a huge amount of time on the ground to be able to understand what's going on. You know, Facebook's trying to do it, frankly, with, you know, I don't think they could ever have the resources to do it well. And even if they did, they'd be behind the times. Mm -hmm. This is why we need a model other than censorship as Mm -hmm. a way to respond to the bad things that happen online. The censorship model will always fail and it'll fail in ways that hurt marginalized voices. And one of the other pieces of the censorship thing, I know we're not talking about it right now, but is that, you know, we have been tracking this for a very long time. And and if you don't pay attention to power and how power works with the big companies and the the people who are speaking, then you'll miss how censorship really works. Mm -hmm. Censorship always disempowers the people who are marginalized. That's why you go to Twitter, and if you're a movie star, you get satisfaction if somebody does something to you. And if you're a nobody, you get kicked off the platform. I I have another expression, kiss up and kick down. Yep. There are people who kiss up and kick down are my least favorite people. But the model has to be, you know, just just pounding on Facebook to do this better is not going to work. They can't. It's not going to work. And so we have to have other models. Right. So, uh, Claire, when you look at this, were there solutions-based thing to do here? Like, because you don't want to leave everybody like, ah, Jesus Christ. Sure, yeah. And I think that was something that was really important for us when we were putting this together is that it felt like we weren't Not just like, throwing yeah, 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 a bunch yeah. of, you know, my mom, I talked to my mom the other day and she just said, your quarterly is making me very anxious and unhappy. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. But she hasn't finished it yet, so maybe she'll feel empowered by the end. Right. Um, but yeah, so we, we wanted um, to kind of weave in these solutions and, and this feeling that like we can pull this back up together. Um, so Sir Ayakuda does a really wonderful piece that's uh, about encryption and it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a how-to um, with a bunch of different steps of things that you can do to protect yourself online, just like really basic, easy things. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> But also kind of talking about the importance of encryption. and the So not just tape of, on your computer over the... Right. <laughs> but that was my first step. Yeah. It was a, it's a very easy first one step. that covers a camera. Yeah, we, we have, have those camera covers. Yeah, I know. I think I have yours. But I go. put one of those on my phone the other day, on my phone camera. Oh, oh on the back, and then yeah. And the first phone conversation I had, I realized it was over the speaker, yeah. too. Yeah, so there's got to be a way you can do it. So I put <laughs> Apple should do it. Apple should do something to make it easy. Like, like you have one, so you can close it. Mm-hmm. But you can't close it. My always thing is when I went to see Mark Zuckerberg, and he had everything covered I'm like, okay, if he has everything right. covered, totally. I really need to have everything covered. <laughs> so go ahead. So more solutions. So this is to, 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 to deal with encryption mm-hmm. and do these things. Mm-hmm. Encryption and just generally keeping yourself protected online, you know, passwords, um, be careful what you plug in, mm-hmm. um, using all the awesome, you know, privacy badger and HTTPS everywhere in these things that EFF have created. Some of it is so hard to use. I Those are find. very easy to use. No, they are. But I'm saying a lot of the, lot mm-hmm. of the, the, the stuff the, that you have is hard, to, the communication. Although it's gotten easier, like Signal and 
the others. Mm-hmm. Um, although WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, like again, like although it's encrypted. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, WhatsApp still has really good encryption. I mean, the right. fact that the founders just left Facebook should keep us all keeping an eye on it. Oh. But um, but they use yes. the Signal protocol, which was originally yeah. developed, uh, was called OTR. Um, so they use a good protocol and it's mm-hmm. open source. And so those are the things that you can look at. But yeah, it is still too hard. It's been too it's hard too since hard. the 90s. I lived, the other day I was struggling with, I forget which one it was. I was like, why am I struggling with this? Right. I, I mean, I shouldn't. these companies have outsourced the idea of keeping yourself secure to you. And that's why everything I'm on, people are like, what can I do to keep myself secure? And and, and we have all sorts of, of things for them. But I mean, the truth is you, you need to write your congressman and tell them that it's time to start talking about, you know, making these information, information fiduciaries. It's it's time to start paying attention to building secure systems. You know, right. the, 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 the police in this country should not be blocking people from having really strong encryption on their devices and mm-hmm. on their systems. Well, that's good. They, We're like five minutes away from one of those fights again. Yeah, they're going to happen again. And, and right. so, you know, why is the government working against our security? They should mm-hmm. be supporting our security. Well, interesting. In that fight, in some people in the government were like Ash Carter was for Apple and James Comey was against Apple. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I, you know, it's been 20 years in the making, but I'm very happy to have allies in the government now who right. understand the power of strong encryption. Right. Um, and, you know, former people, you know, we've been Michael Churchill who was mm-hmm. the original DHS head is on, is on our side. A lot of the intelligence agency well, people they know. are. Well, they know how important it is. And mm-hmm. they're not lying to people anymore about how important it is, which is great. Right. But we need to have all hands on deck to try mm-hmm. to build a more secure uh, network. And we can do that. I mean, the technology exists. The right. technology isn't the hard part. It's right. getting it deployed and getting well, it easy of, for people to use. It's more of an afterthought to them. I don't even think it's even malevolent. It's an, they don't even think about it. So, what else is hopeful in the in the? Yeah, hopeful. hopeful. <laughs> what did you What did you feel like after editing this thing? I mean, I definitely felt some sense of overwhelmed by mm-hmm. all of this. You know, being this awakening to mm-hmm. all of this. And then I went on a tear where I was just trying to educate everyone around me, get everyone on signal. <laughs> uh, did a little work on that over the holidays with my family. But yeah, I think I, right now I'm just so much more aware of it all around me. Like once we started, right when we started um, editing this, I s- realized that it was everywhere. Like everyone is talking about this. This is... Um, not going away. So I'm I'm in an edu- education phase right now. I'm just trying to read everything I can. Right. Um, and I, I think that's the first step Do you, to this. Did it make you think of going off a lot of these devices? I think that uh, there's a lot of realism in this. Like, mm-hmm. we're not going back to flip phones. Mm-hmm. I, I got to have my Google Maps. So I got, mm-hmm. you know, I think that we, it was really important to us to have that realism that, um, you know, we are moving forward. I'm Deleted my Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's the start. <laughs> Anything else? What have I changed? I mean, I added all of those, the privacy badge and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, What do you? How did you feel after? Well, you already were ensconced in this. I mean, I think that the thing that was most important to me, and I, I talk about it in the foreword, mm-hmm. is that we don't just leave people in the valley of despair, and mm-hmm. that we talk about the way out. And um, this I think technealism. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's really important. Um, and I think that that we can do it. I mean, we have grabbed a hold of ourselves as a country, and we've solved harder problems than digital security. Absolutely. And but we have to. We have to think of it that way. I mm-hmm. mean, all the individual things that people can do are really important. 
important, but if the prevailing idea is that it's your individual alone uh, responsibility. Yeah, defend your house. Yeah, you know. It is. It's like that. Defend your house. It feels a little like that. Or, you Milk know, or here's your car. Why don't you go out and research brakes? Right. And right. then, you know, then you can have them. And, 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 and I That's think very that, good that we don't do that um, mm-hmm. as a society and we shouldn't do that here. Um, and that's going to require political action. It's going to require, you know, legal action. It's going to require, you know, regular old activism, so, the work that Soraya and others of my colleagues do where they're teaching encryption techniques to people who need that. Um, we, we talk about privacy as a team sport. Right. So I want to finish up, Cindy, talk about where we are politically right now with the Democratic Congress, once they open the government again, um, if they open the government again. What do you see happening from a regular? You've got over in Europe, they're overreaching in a lot of ways. At the same time, privacy is critically, it's a much bigger deal there. So part of the things they're doing there, I assume you support. Part of them you don't. California has passed a privacy bill, which some people think was enough, but it's certainly the furthest along of any of them. And there's no national privacy bill. Where do you see it going, very briefly? Where do you imagine we're going to go in the next year? Well, I have some dreams. I'm a really (laughs) poor predictor of the future. Um, I do think we're going to start to see the GDPR in Mm -hmm. Europe um, begin to have real effects. And and the the first couple of cases that the regulators pick to take are going to be really important. And Mm -hmm. and we've been in communication with them about some of the things coming down the pike. Those are going to be interesting. Um, we got to stop this copyright directive um, Mm -hmm. in in Europe. That's a disaster. It's a filter machine. Mm -hmm. Um, Here in the U.S., um, our California privacy bill needs a lot of work. Right. And I think it's going to spur a very big push for a federal privacy bill. Right. And the thing to watch for is whether it includes preemption or not. If the feds... Explain that. If feds... The, so preemption is when a federal bill comes in and it makes all the state bills not valid anymore. Right. Um, and there's a lot of efforts by the big platforms to try to use a federal bill to squash any stronger privacy protections that we might get from state law. Right. Um, a federal privacy approach is a really good idea, but not if it squelches the stronger state ones. And what would, would we want... So in California... California, it's a flawed bill, but it's a bit, it's the first massive, big privacy bill. How could that change here? Uh, well, Under here I think there's a lot of efforts to try to dumb it down, and then there's our efforts in the ACLU's to try to bring it back up again. Um, mm-hmm. The biggest thing for us is a private right of action. That is, mm-hmm. if you know you can have all the privacy rules in the world you want, but if nobody's actually empowered to protect themselves, they're going to end up being paper or mm-hmm. only as good as you know the. California Attorney General wants Mm -hmm. them to be, which is, you know, can be good, but could be really bad. So we really think that people should be empowered to protect their own privacy. Mm -hmm. And that includes taking somebody to court when they violated your privacy. And that's critical to us to get Mm -hmm. added to this bill. It was something that was in an earlier version that got stripped out in the end. Uh, um, Yeah. Well, I mean, a few good lawsuits will will change a lot of behavior. But that's what the big companies didn't want. Well, that's why they didn't. But that's why we need to have it, right? I mean, I think it's pretty easy to track what would be best for you right now by Mm -hmm looking at uh, some of the things that have the big companies worried because mm-hmm. they're the big privacy violators. Not all of them. I mean, Apple's mm-hmm. been pretty good on this. Yeah. I don't want to tar across the board. Right. Um, Neither do they. Yeah. They've been trying to point out the differences. Well, you know, look, they I should. like a race to the top. If, yeah. if you think it's in your business It's funny. The Facebook movie is like, oh, he's doing it because of his business. I'm like, yeah, good. I don't care. Yeah, it's no. Good. When competition works right. for you, that's yeah. the best kind of competition, yeah, exactly. right? You as the user. Right. Um, so we'll see that. There's an idea floating in Congress right now, and there's a bill that um, Senator Chats just introduced mm-hmm. um, to try to change the idea of the people who hold our data into being a data fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like, you know, your lawyer as a, a fiduciary is a legal word for mm-hmm. somebody who has a special duty of loyalty to you, mm-hmm. different kinds of duties. Um, and I think shifting the people who hold all our data from, you know, companies who can do whatever 
they want as long as they get us to click on something, to companies who have an independent duty to us, to be mm-hmm. loyal to us and to not do things that are against our interests, um, shifting that role to something more like your accountant or your lawyer or somebody mm-hmm. else can really have a, a very different frame on what our about, relationship uh, with these Section companies. 230 of the Communications Decency Act? Well, I'm a big fan of Section 230, and mm-hmm. I was unhappy with the, the SESTA-FOSTA bill, which was a law that got passed sure. last year. That's chipping uh, away at it. Some people chip- think they will act better if they don't have the immunity they've had. Well, it depends on who the they is, but I think mm-hmm. that right now what we're seeing is Tumblr's getting rid of all adult content. Um, right. The pressure that they might be responsible This is a bill that, that gives broad immunity to platforms, just right. for yeah. people who don't know. Yeah, Section CDA 230 says that if, if you host somebody's speech, you're not responsible for what they say civilly. You're still mm-hmm. criminally responsible, mm-hmm. but you're not civilly responsible. And there's some state law, federal law stuff that gets into the lawyer weeds. And there are a lot of people who are mad at the big platforms who want to chip away at this. And they the do. thing that we are very worried about is that what they don't see is that it's the users who suffer. If mm-hmm. the platforms are worried about liability, become more censorious. they become more censorious. They limit what you yeah. can do. And again, Tumblr has just decided that again, you know, I think female it, presenting nipples are a right. problem. Like this is the kind well, they are, stuff you really. get. <laughs> Female presenting nipples have been a problem since the beginning of time. <laughs> Just, sorry. I mean, it takes me all the way back to my, my right. one of my first things at yeah. EFF that I did was I tried to help these breastfeeding mothers who yeah. were sharing pictures of latching Those and malevolent getting, breastfeeding getting mothers. kicked off of, you know, and like yeah. here we are. It's 20 yeah. years later and we're nope. having the same stupid Nobody fight. Nobody likes boobs, Cindy. Oh, <laughs> big a, issue. Such a so problem. just lastly, Claire, um, <laughs> what would be your next issue? End of trust? Was it going to be First Amendment? Were you going to do another yeah, one? Yeah, right. Well, you guys were talking about that speculative, yeah. you know. Right. Science fiction, I think we found our next issue. Okay, um, all right. But well, we're, gonna, we're sticking with fiction for the next couple of issues. issues. Yeah. But I think you should bring up First Amendment. I think it's the biggest it's for this how we speak to each other in yeah. these platforms yeah, that yeah, become we'll amplified. You know, I've said the, I've I've written they become weaponized in a way that we never understood. And so what it does is it pulls away from the real debates, which I think you know, I mean it's really it creates a problem for everybody, well, especially when these companies are in charge of deciding what speech is. I think that's right. And again, there's a whole lot of people out there who are trying to um, get the rest of us to decide that free speech is a bad thing. Right. Um, and we should be really clear-eyed. I mean, this is an autoimmune disorder that the that, that that a lot of people who really don't like speech themselves, none of those people care about speech mm-hmm. that they disagree with. They're just trying to use these tools to try to get the rest of us to decide that free speech is a bad thing. Yep. And if we fall for it, we're going to lose something much bigger. Yeah. And uh, and this is a, a concern that I and lots of other people have been well, raising. It's the big debate of the next year, I think, is going to be fascinating. Thank you so much. We've had Cindy uh, Cohen from the EFF and Claire Boyle from McSweeney. She's the managing editor. They're talking about a new issue of McSweeney's called The End of Trust. I urge you to read it. Where can you get it, Claire? You were actually going to a second printing of it, so you can buy it on our store site. And we also have a downloadable version on EFF's website. Great. Okay, fantastic. It was great talking to you. And you're coming back on to talk about First Amendment, Cindy. Oh, I'd be delighted. Next. We're going to have a whole long show about it. Thank you, too, for coming on the show. And thanks to you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Cindy, where can people find you online? At EFF. At EFF. And Claire? At Chair Boyle. Okay. And for McSweeney's? Uh, McSweeney's.net. Okay, great. Fantastic. Now that you're done with this, go and check out our other podcast, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.